Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm looking forward to letting you know about what's new in Annals since our last podcast. First, I want to highlight an American College of Physicians position paper on ethical issues related to the integration of precision medicine and genetic testing into clinical care. The ACP's Ethics, Professionalism, and Human Rights Committee developed the recommendations in response to the issue of rapid advances in genome sequencing technology that have generated a range of technologies that can pose ethical questions. While many of the concerns related to genetic testing overlap with testing in general, the ACP thought it is important to highlight a few areas of specific concern. In particular, ACP recommends that physicians assist patients in understanding the risk, benefits, and uncertainty of direct-to-consumer genetic medical testing. In addition, ACP discourages the use of direct-to-consumer genetic medical testing and advises that testing should be done in the context of a patient-physician relationship with appropriate counseling. Finally, genetic testing raises new challenges for privacy and the use and protection of patient information, and the ACP thinks it's essential to address these issues. Next is a study that found that incident atrial fibrillation is common in the setting of non-cardiac surgery and examined where the risks of cerebrovascular events and death differ depending on whether atrial fibrillation is related or unrelated to surgery. Atrial fibrillation that occurs after non-cardiac surgery may be triggered by perioperative stress and systemic inflammation in patients with predisposing comorbidities. For those who develop atrial fibrillation within 30 days of surgery, atrial fibrillation often recurs during subsequent follow-up and carries increased risk for thromboembolism and death compared with patients who had surgery but did not develop atrial fibrillation. It is less clear how postoperative atrial fibrillation compares with atrial fibrillation occurring outside of the operative setting regarding the risk of thromboembolism and death. Researchers from the Mayo Clinic studied data from the Rochester Epidemiology Project for 4,231 patients with incident atrial fibrillation to compare the risk for ischemic stroke, TIA, and death in patients with postoperative AFib versus those with incident AFib not associated with surgery. They found that 550 patients, or 13%, had postoperative AFib as their first ever documented presentation. Most of these incidents occurred within one week after surgery, and the cumulative incidence of subsequent documented atrial fibrillation was approximately 21% at one year after the index periprocedural episode. The authors also found that compared to AFib unrelated to a surgical procedure, Postoperative AFib was associated with similar risk for stroke, TIA, and death. According to the authors, their results suggest that patients with postoperative AFib may require ongoing surveillance for the arrhythmia and its complications. They also suggest that the underuse of anticoagulation in these patients may reflect the perception that postoperative AFib is an isolated, provoked arrhythmia after non-chiric surgery that carries less severe implications than other forms of atrial fibrillation but these data show that this perception may be erroneous. Next is a systematic review that found that when telehealth-delivered care was used to supplement or replace in-person maternal care services, clinical outcomes and patient satisfaction were similar and sometimes better compared to in-person care. Access to high-quality maternal health care is associated with reduced maternal morbidity and mortality because it facilitates identification of conditions that increase the risk for poor outcomes and enables timely prevention or treatment. Maternal morbidity and mortality are unacceptably high in the United States, particularly within some demographic groups. 
The use of telehealth services to deliver maternal care is a possible strategy towards improving delivery of maternity care, increasing patient satisfaction, and reducing maternal health disparities. Researchers from Oregon Health and Science University conducted a rapid review of 28 randomized controlled trials and 14 observational studies, including a total of 44,894 women, to determine the effectiveness and harms of telehealth strategies for maternal health care in response to the recent expansion of telehealth arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of the telehealth strategies included in the review were studied to treat postpartum depression, minor diabetes or hypertension during pregnancy, or as an alternative to general maternity care for women with low-risk pregnancies. The authors found that telehealth strategies resulted in mostly similar or sometimes better maternal, clinical, obstetric, and patient-reported outcomes compared with in-person care. More specifically, they noted that telehealth may have a role as supplemental care for postpartum depression, as telehealth interventions were more likely to improve mood symptoms in the short term compared to in-person care alone. Maternity care in the U.S. is particularly ripe for innovation given the poor maternal outcomes despite the affluence of our nation and limited evidence supporting traditional approaches to prenatal care that rely on multiple in-person visits. The authors say that their findings highlight an ongoing need to incorporate methods to evaluate and improve health equity, an important element lacking in these telehealth studies. On August 9th, Annals published two articles from the Women's Preventive Services Initiative, a national coalition of women's health professional organizations and patient advocacy representatives. The articles include a clinical guideline recommending that clinicians discuss obesity prevention strategies with normal weight women aged 40 to 60 years, and the evidence review that provides the foundation for the recommendations. Obesity is a common condition in women during midlife, affecting about 43% of American women aged 40 to 59 who may experience physiologic changes related to aging, menopause, reduced physical activity, and changes in body composition. Obesity increases the risk for many chronic conditions, including hypertension, dyslipidemia, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, stroke, and all-cause mortality and is causally related to cancer at 13 different anatomical sites, including the endometrium, ovary, and breast. Previous clinical recommendations have not specifically addressed obesity prevention in midlife women with normal BMI. The Women's Preventive Services Initiative recommendation addresses this gap by considering evidence on the effectiveness and harms of behavioral interventions to prevent weight gain and obesity in women aged 40 to 60 years who are not yet obese. Researchers from Oregon Health and Science University conducted a systematic review of seven randomized controlled trials that included 51,638 participants. Five of the included trials focused on counseling participants with clinicians offering advice or specific recommendations on behavior change, such as weight monitoring, dietary changes, or physical activity. There were two exercise trials, one that evaluated medically supervised exercise and the other that prescribed both exercise and counseling. The authors found that in four of the five counseling trials, participants achieved favorable weight changes, but in the two trials focused on exercise, they did not. The authors also report that there were no adverse psychological effects associated with counseling interventions, but one trial reported increased self-reported falls with an intervention to increase physical activity in previously inactive women. The Women's Preventive Services Initiative recommends counseling midlife women aged 40 to 60 years with normal or overweight BMIs, 18.5 to 29.9 kilograms per meter squared, to maintain weight or limit weight gain to prevent obesity, 
Counseling may include individualized discussion of healthy eating and physical activity. The recommendation was made based on the balance of benefits and harms reported in the included studies in the systematic review, known health benefits of preventing obesity, and minimal anticipated harms of counseling. The authors note that normalizing counseling about healthy diet and physical activity by providing it to all midlife women may also mitigate concerns about weight stigma resulting from counseling only women who are obese. They add that further research is needed to identify optimal behavioral interventions that are effective, feasible, and sustainable, and can be implemented in primary care settings among diverse populations. Go to annals.org to read the articles, and you can also view a very brief video that summarizes the evidence review. The recent Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs v. Jackson raises concerns for patients with rheumatic disease and their clinicians. First is a concern about access to medically indicated abortion indicated because of teratogen exposure or active rheumatic disease. Second is a worry about access to necessary medications that are potentially teratogenic. Third is a concern about laws that interfere with patient-clinician discussions about reproductive issues. In a new commentary, Dr. Megan Klaus, a member of the Reproductive Health Task Force of the American College of Rheumatology, and Dr. Kenneth Saab, President of the Board of Directors of the American College of Rheumatology, discuss the serious challenges that rheumatologists who care for patients with complex inflammatory conditions throughout their reproductive years now face. Regardless of political or religious views, it is difficult to view interruptions in care, added risk for patients with life-threatening chronic disorders, and added burden to the healthcare system as positive consequences of the SCOTUS ruling. Go to annals.org to read this impassioned commentary and the other new material I've mentioned. There are opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Stay well, and I hope you'll return in two weeks for the next Annals podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.